You're listening to World of Noise on X-Ray FM and the X-Ray Podcast Network. Each week we dive into the vast pool of talent that is Portland's music scene and return to the surface with interviews with some of the artists and behind-the-scenes workers that make this city what it is. The mass media around this country tends to associate Portland with the rise of alternative and indie rock thanks to the hard work and brilliant music of artists like the Spinanes, Everclear, the Decemberists, Modest Mouse, and Portugal the Man. But dig a little deeper and it becomes clear that there are two genres for which Portland is considered a thriving hub, and that's Americana and Heavy Rock. Both have thrived here in Portland and the Northwest like native plants popping up wherever they find even a small space to take root. It's what has allowed festivals like Pickathon and the Northwest String Summit, or Stump Fest and Ceremony of Sludge to enjoy the success that they have. And has allowed artists like my guests on this week's show to find a welcome home for their music, which, as all good music should, pays heed to the albums and artists that have come before them, while also moving their respective genres forward in exciting new ways. That can be a difficult prospect for a genre like Americana, but singer-songwriter John Craigie is one of those talents that is making that a reality. Some of that is through his wry sense of humor, which he puts on display most readily during his live performances, shows that are part concert, part stand-up routine. And his recorded work, like his forthcoming album Asterisk the Universe, a lovely document of a loose recording session that he set up with his friends on the coast of California that is imbued with the warm temperatures and lush landscape of that part of the world. With his new album out next week on June 12th, I spent some time on the phone with John to talk about the development of his onstage persona, the recording of Asterisk the Universe, and his regular gigs around Portland celebrating the work of the Beatles. John Craigie, thank you so much for being on World of Noise today. Yeah, good to be here, man. How have you been faring during this pandemic and the music industry being on lockdown right now? Oh, you know, uh, I guess um, can't complain too much, although I would I would love to complain. <laughs> um, but uh, I think, yeah, mostly just, uh, you know, missing the, the life that I had. <clears throat> I, you know, so much of my life was based around touring and everything that goes with that and um, and, you know, not only is that gone, but that seems to be sort of lowest on the priority of, of, uh, you know, when things are coming back. So just kind of dealing with all that reality, I guess. And, uh, but, you know, grateful for my health and, um, health of my friends and family. And, you know, I am want to make sure that everyone, you know, gets healthy and, or it's, it's sort of the best scenario, um, before, before we get back to concerts, but, you know, just sort of trying to make it all uh, make sense. I was going to say, you know, someone who tours as much as you do, this has to be a challenge. I mean, did you have uh, at least some sort of cushion so you don't have to worry too much about the finances or is that a struggle as well? Uh, As of now, I'm not, yeah, the finances are not a a huge concern. I mean, I've been doing, a few live streams and then the fans have just been very kind with, you know, buying merch online and, uh, and stuff like that. And I, you know, I get it, I get some decent royalties through the, 
um, streams and downloads and stuff like that. So uh, that's not my main concern more is just sort of my, my mental <laughs> well-being uh, as far as, uh, you know, sort of that, uh, you know, it's so funny how as in any kind of artist, but I think, yeah, any kind of artist, you know, you spend a lot of time developing, uh, you know, the best way to express yourself and, you know, whatever that means. <clears throat> and then, and you know, you can, it's, it's very tricky. Obviously there's so many factors to that. And then finally, finally you, you know, you sort of figure it out and you get things going and even then it's chaotic and it's a roller coaster, but you have it down. And then, I don't know, sometimes you, you know, sort of imagine or plan for monkey wrenches. And, and I always was doing that. And I was always thinking, okay, well, now what would happen if, if this or this, but I, I guess I just never considered that specific scenario of no, no crowds could not gather. You know, I just, um, I never thought of it in those terms. So it's been really interesting. I think sort of dealing with that. Yeah. I think this took a lot of people by surprise for sure. How have your how have your live stream shows been going? Uh, okay, uh, you know, again, I'm really grateful for the support from the listener base. It's it's hard for me, I think, because uh, it's so different than my shows. Uh, you know, some artists, I think, maybe who are really uh, just just really absorbed into the music. Um, <clears throat> you know, like a really, a really sort of sweet, quiet songwriter, or maybe a jazz musician or something like that. I think it may be a little easier for them because uh, it's just song and then applause. But, you know, for me, I, I do so much with storytelling and, uh, you know, a little, little humor when I can. And uh, I, you know, I really realized how much I, I uh, thrive off of the audience, you know, actually being in the same room with me. And so um, it has been, been challenging. And, you know, it's sort of, I think that's another thing that's hard is as we're moving forward in the business is trying to adapt. And so everyone's sort of coming up with new stream ideas and, and new um, techniques for all that. And so, but I don't get it. I don't get as excited because to me, it's like <clears throat> until they're, until I'm in that room with the audience, it's, I don't think it's going to do it for me, you know, <laughs> that makes sense. not to be, not to be so defeatist, but yeah. No, that makes sense. There's that sort of interaction that you can have with an audience on stage that just isn't the same if you're trying to follow them on like a chat stream or something like that. Yeah. So, but you know, I've been curious, I think all, all musicians are, you know, we, we want to stay relevant. We want to stay in people's minds and we, uh, but for me, I'm, I'm really like curious and sort of looking into what it is about the streams that people like. I'm trying to figure that part out too, you know, because <clears throat> I, I think, again, it's just such a new medium for the listener as well, not just me. And so, you know, cause before this happened, that was not a very common thing to be doing. You know, I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure plenty of people were going live on Instagram and Facebook, but it wasn't like the norm as it is now. So I'm interested in, I talk to my friends on the phone a lot and, and I get a lot of emails from fans and I'm just trying to figure out, uh, what it is about the stream that, that people like, whether it's, is it the, is it that interaction? You know, is it the, uh, hearing new songs is it you know you reading the comments i don't know you know so i think that's another challenge for me too it's like just what is the what's the right what's the sort of golden ticket within the stream let's talk about your new album that's coming out asterisk the universe 
Uh, it's an interesting title. Uh, it feels like something where you can almost like plug any word into the asterisk part of that. So was that how you intended that to be read? Oh, uh, no, no. Um, I know it's a complicated title. Uh, <laughs> it actually comes. <laughs> uh, that's why I didn't, I didn't consider that being one of the options. Um, it comes from, you know, I was a student at UC Santa Cruz uh, and I got my degree in mathematics and I did my thesis on infinity and <clears throat> in the math department, the thesis was a pretty loose thing. And basically, I don't even know if they would have even used that word. It was essentially, a, you know, a exit requirement to write a paper and give a, a you know, talk, oral presentation. But I do think the word thesis had been thrown around, thrown around. Anyway, mine was on infinity and I, wrote my paper and I titled it Asterisk Universe, but my professor reminded me that I don't need that. It, it wasn't a book. I didn't need to have a title. <laughs> and so um, I ended up just submitting it titleless. And I always liked that. Um, I liked that concept. I mean, and it just, it's just referring to the, you know, the, the concept of infinity and how it's something that we all can agree upon existing, but you know, our brains can't, really uh fathom it and when we when i when you and i are talking about the universe in our brains we are imagining an infinite space depending on what you believe of the universe but but you know there is an asterisk there you know in the end it's a finite thing there's a little asterisk at the end sort of saying like you know not full universe pictured here wow if that makes sense it does make sense i've just never really thought about that before wow yeah. Now, why mathematics? What was your the attraction there? Well, you know, I joke about it a lot on stage, and um, <clears throat> and you know, the, the true story about it is, it you know is is I think humorous. But uh, to be to be honest, I music was my passion, but also I was never a great student. I was never like the kind of person who was really good in school. But uh, college was very important to me. You know, I sort of had square upbringing square Catholic parents and my sister had sort of always told me, you know, no matter what, go to college, get out of the house. It'll be good for you. It doesn't matter, you know, what you study. So when I got to Santa Cruz, I was afraid that I would not, you know, I'd fail and have to go back home. And so I thought about majoring in music, but my friends told me that the music program was extremely difficult and very like thorough. And I was definitely not going to make it. <laughs> and so I started I started asking around, I said, well, I've got to pick something that I can cruise through art, you know, but again, Santa Cruz, because it's such an artistic school, the art program was also very um, thorough. So um, one guy said to me, have you taken a math class here? And I said, of course not. That sounds very hard. <laughs> and, and he said, uh, mm, check it out. You know, you'll see. And because because it was Santa Cruz and because it wasn't like a math, you know, focused school, the classes were very relaxed and chill and, um, you know, for lack of a better word, easy. And so I took a pre-calculus class or uh, something like that and, and um, you know, really enjoyed the, the, the way the professors were. And the, the department was very small. Everyone was very, like, funny and you know we would take all these trippy classes about you know chaos theory and then you know theoretical mathematics and it was almost like a art art major in a way you know um 
the way we discussed it. <clears throat> and then sometimes you get to a class that was really complex, you know, group theory or ring theory. And the professor, I guess, just assumed we knew what he was talking about because he would always be like, you guys know all this stuff. So just for your, you know, for your grad, you know, for your final exam, you know, just write me a paper on whatever. And then you'd go research and write a paper. And, you know, so it wasn't a lot of like two plus two is four or, or even like, you know, crazy differential equations. It was, uh, it was pretty, pretty easy. And that was, and that was a big part of, you know, me passing. And then of course me then having the time to explore music in sort of within the community of Santa Cruz, which was very rich and, and artistic and hippie and, and uh, jammy. And I learned so much through that. If that makes sense. It does. Wow. Yeah. Now so much of the sound and feel of your new record asterisk, I'm going to get script this title so much every time. So, <laughs> so much yeah, of this, <laughs> so much of the sound and feel of asterisk the universe uh, feels like it comes from where it was recorded, which was down in California. Um, can, you yeah. can you tell us about the space where you recorded this and who you worked with? Definitely, yeah. So, with my album previous, No Rain No Rose, I had recorded at my own house in Portland. Um, you know, with all my friends and, uh, um, I really had enjoyed that, that process. And I had, uh, since moved out of that house, <clears throat> I was in a much smaller house. And a lot of those friends that I had made that record with had moved away. <clears throat> Guys who were in the band fruition, uh, shook twins sort of <clears throat> displaced Brad Parsons. So I figured I had to go somewhere else and I had been working a lot in California, which is of course where I'm from with a, a group called the rainbow girls, three women from uh, Sonoma County. And they've been doing a lot of singing with me and uh, performing with me, opening for me. And so we just began talking and they have a cabin in a place called Bodega, which is sort of outside of Sebastopol, which is outside of Santa Rosa. And um, I, <clears throat> we've had, we've had many parties there and many, gatherings there and it just seemed like the perfect spot and so for about a week last march uh i got bart budwig out who was the engineer from no rain no rose who's an amazing songwriter himself but also my favorite engineer and we just kind of you know set up all the gear in the living room and then brought everybody from uh jamie coffins from coffins brothers nico from shook twins uh mac goff and ben berry from the marty o'reilly old soul orchestra uh lorenzo uh, from California Honey Drops and of course Rainbow Girls and we just played the songs and there wasn't much of a direction to it uh, just sort of I would show them the song and we would figure out that what was natural to all of us and it really was a nice blend and, and really a wonderful experience Excellent, yeah Bart was a previous guest on the show so I'm glad to hear you were working awesome. with him again <clears throat> Yeah now, where does this song begin for you? And I, I read some of the uh, descriptions of some of the songs of the record, like Viacito, uh It was came from something that you had read. Is that usually where you're getting material from? Just things that you're reading, things that you're seeing out in the world, or are you mining personal stuff for your songs as well? Yeah, I, that particular song is more of the rare occurrence for me. I think that um, it's mostly based off a personal experience or something that I experienced sort of secondhand I'm, I'm, I'm witnessing, you know, or, um, or I'm told directly that case was, you know, it was two things. I was, I was talking to a friend of mine about 
how I meet some artists and musicians who are, have, are very, very talented, but I don't, I find a lack of soul in their art. And, and, you know, there's sort of the famous story of Robert Johnson selling his soul to the devil. I had made a comment about, you know, how some of these people, they sold the soul, but they got a bad deal. <laughs> and, uh, this is my, my friend, Daniel Rodriguez from Elfin Revival. And, and he had said, uh, that's a good, that's a good song, you know, idea. And around that same time, I had read this story about, uh, sort of being sort of snow adventures and trapped in the ice and trapped in woods kind of things. And so that's where it all came together, but that's not my normal process for sure. I mean, I think it seems to me the kind of songs I write are either, yes, story songs based off of my own, you know, thing or secondhand or sort of almost like a dissertation or a a speech. I find there's a song called hustling, which is the opening track on the record. And, that one is sort of that Beck style. And I have a song called Dissect the Bird off my live record. And those songs to me are kind of like, here are my thoughts on this topic or, you know, and then other times it's sort of like, this is what happened on this one moment in my life. So that's, those are the, I think the more common and uh, the sort of what I would call fiction songs I write. Uh, I love when those come to me, but it's very rare. Okay. Now, as you mentioned, you know, a lot of what gets talked about you is about your presence on stage, how you utilize storytelling and humor in your introductions to songs and with the audience. Now, is that something that came very naturally to you or was that an ability that you kind of had to strengthen over time? Um, It definitely was a huge, uh, long process of, yeah, strengthening over time. Um, But in general... um, the notion of storytelling was, was with me prior to music. I was always doing that as a young, a young man, you know, when I lived uh, in, in LA as a little boy that, so I started playing music and that didn't come as naturally to me. That was a much harder challenging thing to sort of singing was not something that was normal for me. And neither was a, uh, you know, guitar or harmonica, but it then took a while to feel comfortable doing that on stage because I grew up in the nineties, which was very much a time for sort of, I would call like serious, you know, kind of music, you know, the, the songwriters at the time were Jewel and Tracy Chapman and, um, you know, and then Pearl Jam and uh, Nirvana and then all that stuff. And then there was sort of like, if anything was silly, it was more like, in in a punkish way, like a smash mouth or something, but there wasn't really, I never saw anybody doing story time on stage other than like a stand up comic or whatever. So to me, the two didn't make sense. And it wasn't until I got more comfortable on stage and I just, you know, it was, it became, it was a beginning, excuse me. In the beginning, it was a form of therapy where I was alone on the road, traveling, playing these coffee shops, I get to a new town and I just had no one to talk to. So in between the songs, the audience was there and these were usually really small crowds and really quiet spaces. And I would just be like, man, yesterday, you know, and people enjoyed that. And, and I, you know, I, I had a, um, a sense of humor. And so, uh, it, it just started to really feel really good when I did that and, uh, and the audience seemed to really respond well. So yeah, it, it grew over time, but, uh, it was definitely a, a process. 
Now, something that you have been getting known for around town is these shows you've been putting on where you've been tackling the work of the Beatles. Uh, you know, last year, you yeah. did some shows uh, doing Abbey Road. Um, what made you want to try your hand at their material? Uh, well, that's a funny story. Um, and yeah, that's something that I think also I've been a little depressed about is that uh, we're still not sure how we're going to do it if we can. But, you know, this year would be the... Uh, would be the let it be. And I've been done a lot of prep for that, but we're not sure, uh, um, you know, how or when that can happen. But anyway, uh, what happened was in 27, early 2017, I was having a friendly argument with a musician friend about Sergeant Peppers. And there's a common thing that people say about Sergeant Peppers a lot, which is that, uh, you know, it's, well, it's often, you know, rated as sort of greatest album of all time. I'm sure as you're aware, or, it's always on the top of critics lists or, you know, best, whatever album concept album. But oftentimes when I read it, pe people criticize it by saying, you know, it's all about the bells and whistles. And when you break it down, the songs are not as good as rubber soul revolver, you know, things like that. And that always bothered me because when I was younger and unaware of, you know, critics lists, I always liked Sgt. Pepper's because, to me, it was the first time, and they did a little bit on Revolver, but on Sgt. Pepper's, it's the first time where they really stopped singing, like, they start singing kind of folk songs in a way, or the way that I write, which is like, they start telling stories. In fact, there are a few love songs on there, or songs that quote-unquote about a girl, but they're more complex, you know? So, When I'm 64 or Lovely Rita are really your two you know, love songs. And, um, even that they're more specific. And so I really, I, what I said to my friend is, or he said something like, if somebody just sat down and played those songs acoustically, it would be a disaster. And so I kind of took that challenge and I said, uh, I bet, you know, I could, I could play those songs and people would really enjoy it. And so, uh, that was sort of the challenge. And I said something, I, I was a little cocky. I said, I'll, I'd stop the show. <laughs> <laughs> and I played, there's a venue here in Portland that's a hundred cap Alberta street pub. And so, um, I sat down and I learned each song, uh, off Sergeant Peppers and I kind of, you know, took huge liberties in arranging it to my style, you know, but, you know, keeping the core of the song and the story of the song. And then it, just cause I am a nerd, I went and kind of researched the backgrounds of the things. And so my show, I told some stories about this, about the album that were humorous, but also informative. And anyway, the show did really well sold out. We ended up doing a couple more after that, uh, to, of that show. So then it just became a thing next year. People said, what are you going to do? And so I did white album the next year and then Abbey road. And so, um, you know, it's, it's, it was a really funny thing. Sorry. Fun thing for me to do. Uh, I always love learning covers. It always helps expand my knowledge and I always learn a new move, you know, or a new phrasing. And, uh, and so that's kind of where that came from. Wow. Because I was, I was wondering like, you know, what sort of learning curve there was to get, you know, those songs down, especially if you're talking about something like the white album, or besides the fact that there's so many songs you have to think about, you know, there's some pretty complex numbers on that album. Oh yeah, totally. Yeah. So I have become a master of uncomplexifying a, a song, especially, <laughs> I, especially the, the Lennon songs. Cause as you know, he's, He's the master of the different time signature. You know, this is in, you know, six, eight, this is in three, four, this is in five, four. I tend to just sort of focus more on the song and, and the sort of heart of the song and the lyrics and uh, make it work. But yeah, it's, it's, it's also very challenging for me. I mean, 
last year when I did Abbey Road, which is a wonderful album and isn't too crazy if you if you focify it. But you know, there's songs like "I Want You," "She's So Heavy," uh, something with the riff and something, and then uh, um, "You Never Give Me Your Money," which has a whole you know, it's almost like a three part suite, not to mention the whole ending, but, um, so yeah, it was, I love the challenge and it's really fun for me to push myself that way. Well, your album again is out on June 12th. Uh, what comes next for you? I mean, do you have any plans for the near future or there anything you're working on right now that you could hip us to? Well, yeah, I mean, you know, I think the main thing is we're all kind of just waiting, um, you know, me specifically, I'm waiting for that kind of green light to do some kind of shows. And um, like I said before, obviously just want to make sure that uh, it's the right way to do them and safe. And um, uh, so that's the near future. But yeah, I'm always writing and always, uh, uh, I'm, I imagine if this goes on for a while, I will, Bart and I, I have been talking about another, starting another project uh this summer if, if that's if if it's sort of if there's no shows at all in the summer i imagine that will be where i'll put my energy um and uh and yeah of course just uh really grateful to have the record coming out in, in june and and you know i'll do my best to promote it. it it'll it's a weird in one hand it's a good time to put music out because i do think people a really need music. I know I do. I need new music all the time with, with, you know, my time alone and and bored. And, uh, but also, um, on the other hand, it's a weird time because you can't, uh, you know, promote it and tour it the way that you would. In fact, I know some artists, I think Dixie chicks are postponing their release. Um, which I, which I thought was weird, but I assumed just meant they wanted, they want to do it full on, you know, Exactly. Yeah. Well, if anyone wants to keep track of what John Craigie is doing, you can go to johncraigiemusic.com. You can find him on Facebook. John Craigie Official is his page. And his album, Asterisk the Universe, is out on June 12th via 30 Tigers. John, thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. My next guest, Adam Pike, is one of those people who is quite literally responsible for the sound of the Northwest heavy rock scene. He's recorded dozens of metal and hardcore bands over the years, working behind the boards for acts like Red Fang, Holy Grove, and Tiesto at his own Toad House Studios. And he works on a regular basis as the live sound engineer for Red Fang, a job that has taken him around the world and back again. But he's also a great musician and has found a new outlet for his talents with the band Ills. The band is something of a heavy rock supergroup, as it also features vocalist Tom Glose, who used to front the band Black Elk, and Nate Abner of the group The Days, The Nights on guitar. And their sound, as you can hear, is a nasty one, inspired by noise rock pioneers like Unsane and Melvin's. With their new self-titled album out next month, I caught up with Adam Pike, who now serves as the bass player in Ills, to talk about this new project and his work behind the scenes in Portland's heavy rock community. Adam Pike of Ills, thank you so much for being on World of Noise today. Hey there, thank you for having me. How are you faring during this strange time, Adam? Uh, well... 
I had a bit of a scare. Uh, I run a recording studio here in Portland, and I also run a, a couple warehouses that I uh, I uh, rent rooms for bands to to rehearse in. So I figured that would be last on the uh, priority list for people. Uh, but somehow, some way, uh, most of the bands have stayed, and the studios still keep them busy. Um, just says a lot about the uh, the Portland music community, if you ask me. Absolutely. Are you are you able to do a lot of work for yourself at this time as well? Yeah, I have been. Um, I've been doing like Zoom meetings uh, with bands to do like mixed notes, and uh, I haven't recorded a full band since this whole thing has happened. But I've done a lot of overdubbing, like vocal overdubbing, and uh, it's worked out pretty well. You know, the studio's pretty big, so we can wear our masks and keep our distance. Excellent. Well, let's talk about Ills. How did this project come together? Um, well, I actually am, well, not fairly new. I've been in the band for about a year and a half. Uh, but the band started about two years ago. And uh, I don't know, we're, we're all just friends in the music community. We've all known each other for years, playing in different bands. And um, they had trouble with their bass player. And I got a call. And here we are. about to release a, a debut album in july so it was a lot of the material that is on this record stuff that was already worked out with the previous bass player or was this all new stuff they released uh, a five song ep about two years ago and we basically i re-recorded all the bass parts on those and we remixed it and then we wrote five new ones since I've been in the band and that's what's going to be the debut album. So did the music for this come together pretty quickly then? Is there a lot of trial and error involved in you guys writing songs together? No, it, it comes pretty quick. Um, we already got pretty much halfway through the second album at this point. Um, it also helps that our songs are all like two minutes long, <laughs> you know, <laughs> fair <so>. point. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, it's, uh, it's pretty easy. We all get along really well. And, uh, you know, usually Nate, the guitar player, comes in with an idea, and then we hit the ground running. Yeah, so is this a situation of just all you guys knowing each other from around this, you know, local heavy music scene? Yeah, exactly. Like, the singer Tom, uh, he used to sing in a band called Black Elk, and I used to, uh, I recorded a couple records for him, and I also toured with him as a front of house engineer. This was, you know, 10 years ago. <clears throat> so uh, when Nate kind of approached me with the idea, Nate and Tim, Tim the drummer, um, where like, we got to get Tom to sing. And he kind of been, we had to wake the sleeping giant, as we say. <laughs> <laughs> now, for someone who has made a living recording artists at your studio, Toad House, which you were talking about before, uh, I was surprised to see you're not listed as one of the engineers on this record. Uh, yeah, it's funny. Um, people have asked me about that. I, when we wrote these new songs we actually did go to my studio and uh demoed them out and then we did it for real and then we kind of a beat it with the other stuff and <clears throat> i don't know it just wasn't gelling you know it sounded too different so i just decided to take a back seat and nate the guitar player he happens to be an engineer as well so we just went back and recorded it the new songs exactly how we recorded or they recorded i should say the old songs which is in our practice space and then we had a, another mutual friend of ours, Stephen Hawks, great engineer in Portland. Um, we had him put it all together, and it seemed to work out seamlessly. It's great. And I was happy to take a back seat. 
I, I, I always say uh, it was awesome to be on the other side of the glass. <laughs> One less thing to worry about. Exactly. Now, what can you tell me about the name of this band, Ills, uh, which is spelled I-L-S for anyone who might not be uh, familiar with it? Uh, there's many definitions of it. <laughs> I like to say, I like to say it stands for invisible lat syndrome, which is kind of like, you know, when the old tough guys used to like puff up and kind of stick their lats out, you know, <laughs> that's what I, that's what I think it means. <laughs> I'll let the other guys, uh, say what they think it means, but that's what I go with. Oh my goodness. It's, uh, a, joke. it's a joke. <laughs> that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> So while I have you, you know, I did want to ask about your work as an engineer and the owner of Toad House. Uh, so you've got, you know, sure. like you said, the place where people can record. There are rehearsal spaces that you uh, that you uh, manage as well. And as you said, it sounds like things have been going pretty well, even with things being shut down for most of the rest of the music industry. Yeah, it has. Um, I've been very, very fortunate. Um, yeah, there's not much else to say. I mean, I had a, a week or two where I was pulling my hair out and you know, just like every other small business applying for a PPP loan and small business disaster loans and all that. And uh, luckily, one of my PPP loans did go through. So I'm passing that savings on to my tenants for next month, giving everybody half off rent to try to help. It's a little, but, you know, hopefully it helps them. Hey, every little bit and helps. And, yeah, and, and just to thank them for staying, you know. Like I said, um, I only had a few people move out, and, you know, I can't blame them, but... Uh, all in all, we're, we're up and running. So, Was this always a dream of yours, to have your own studio? Oh, yeah. I mean, that's the whole reason why. I'm from Indiana, and uh, I graduated from Indiana University in the audio program. And I came out here in 2003 for an internship. You know, I thought I'd be here for three months, and that turned into a job. And here I am, what, eight, 18 years later or so? Wow. Yeah. So was that job yeah. at uh, Jackpot, right? Um, I in, ended up. It was, the internship wasn't a jackpot. It was okay. A called Are You List? It was a place called Are You Listening, which is uh, it was above where Bunk Bar is now in uh, what is that uh, southeast by the water by the waterfront, and uh, that studio eventually closed. And then I had called Larry. I had met Larry a couple times just through some parties that we had at our studio, and asked him if I could come. And he's like, "Come on by. I'll show you what's up." Nice. Very. Uh, thank. Yeah, I worked there. Before Toad House started, I worked there for probably five years, and then Toad House really got going in like 2009. Nice. So who are some of the uh, names that people might recognize who you've worked with at Toad House? Uh, well, I think the main one would probably be my third job. I, I, run, I do front of house for a band called Red Fang, mm -hmm. and I ended up doing their debut album at Jackpot, uh, Prehistoric Dog, as many people probably probably know anyway at least in portland and uh yeah i did their debut record and been their front of house guy for about 10 years now okay now i wanted to ask about that job as a front of house engineer um for red fang and you've done it for other bands as well like the icarus line um yeah but i wanted to first ask if you could explain to listeners who might not know what that job entails <clears throat> um it entails just knowing the band, A, and then uh, getting to the venue early with them, setting up all the mics and uh, doing sound check, and then waiting about six hours, doing a <laughs> rock and roll show, <laughs> taking it all down, getting on the bus, and then doing it all again the next day. 
But you you were the guy who's like, you know, out there at the soundboard, you know, keeping levels straight and making sure everything's sounding good, basically. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Okay. How did you land that gig? Just working with them on the, the album? Yeah. I mean, I hadn't met them prior to recording them. Um, I Well, I sort of met them through mutual friends, and we did the record, and... I kept showing my friends, I'm like, this is good, isn't it? You know, I, I was like, not to brag, but it's, I think this is good. And I didn't really hear from them. You know, they toured their butt off for a number of years, probably like three years. And then all of a sudden I got a call. They're like, hey, if you're interested, we're ready now to bring a front of house guy out on the road. And the rest is history. Why do you think that is important for some bands to have someone as their sound guy consistently to have them on tour with them? peace of mind like no question you know they don't have to worry about you know who is this new guy working with us you know if they get a house not the house guys are bad at things not saying that but you know you run into the lazy one every once in a while so <laughs> just just peace of mind knowing that it's going to sound how you want it to sound without question and in this job working with red fame where has this taken you around the world at this point you you name it um <laughs> I was thinking about that. Somebody asked me that not too long ago, and uh, I pulled out a map, like a map app, and we've pretty much been everywhere besides Japan. Wow. And, you know, the obvious stuff. Like, yeah. Um, and for, I don't know why we haven't been there, but pretty much everywhere besides Japan, Hawaii, and Alaska. So something to look forward to for the future to make those tours happen. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> We're actually working on Alaska. So. Oh, good. Oh, okay. good. Yeah. yeah. Um, any big, any memorable shows stand out from that bunch that you've done with Red Fang? Oh, man. Too many. I know it's I hard mean, to probably pick one, but, you know. Um, I mean, a, a big memory um, that I have is doing Reading and Leeds. Um, huge festivals across the pond um and this particular year queens of the stone age was headlining and <clears throat> we know some of those guys so we're we're sitting right behind them and we're looking out at the sea of people you know it's like five hundred thousand people you can't even see where it ends you know and i just remember like man this is this is amazing so very blessed to have those kind of opportunities is it an easy thing for you to balance out, you know, these sort of three strains of your creative life where you've got the work you're doing in studio, the stuff you do on the road, and then the stuff that you do playing bass in a band and making your own music? It was at the beginning. Um, I tell people that's why I have some gray hair now. Um, <laughs> for, the first, for the first few years, yeah, it was very tough to juggle um, just because I had to you know, I was just getting into kind of being a landlord, so to say. And, uh, you know, I had to find somebody that I trusted that could take care of all those aspects while I was gone on the road. <clears throat> and through trial and error, you know, found some people to do that for me. And ever since then, you know, it's it's been pretty easy. I mean, as far as work's concerned. Not easy, but smoother. Smoother. <laughs> yes. Less gray hair coming. There you go. <laughs> So do you have any idea of what comes next for you and for the band, for Ills? Well, I don't, we don't really, um, you know, 
people are talking about venues not even opening till next year, which is a huge bummer. So we're actually going to try to do um, a live stream with a couple cameras. We've got an AV guy that we met, and uh, we're going to see how that goes, like doing a set in the studio, you know, and obviously I can mic everything up for some good audio quality. And if it goes smoothly, I'm hoping to offer that to other bands, you know, kind of put on their own shows and stream it. So that's that's what's cooking right now, anyway. Excellent. So I'm sure folks can hit up your Facebook page, the ILS Facebook page, that is again ILS, to keep track of when that's going to happen. And if you want to hear some music by ILS, you go to illspdx.bandcamp.com. There'll be a couple of tracks up there. And the album Curse is coming out on July 4th, which is uh, a perfect day for an album release, I think. <laughs> Why not, you know? <laughs> well, Adam Pike, again, thank you so much for being our World of Noise today. This has been wonderful. Yeah, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. The members of the band Tithe have solid roots in the heavy rock scene of the West Coast, with vocalist and guitarist Matt Eisman and drummer Kevin Swartz coming of age and making a racket in the Bay Area. And since moving to Portland, they've kept that momentum going with their truly brutal new project, Tithe. Born out of the group's love of fast, uncompromising music that delves into the horrors of humanity, what sets Tithe's work apart is their appreciation and consumption of psychedelics, something that Eisman, as you'll hear in a moment, has a deep appreciation for. It can be hard to hear the influence in their work, but on the group's new album Penance, it appears through well-placed samples and tracks that flow and burst with strange color and musical shapes. Matt Eisman joins us next on World of Noise to talk about microdosing, his classical influences, and much more. Well, Matt Eisman of Tithe, thanks for being on World of Noise today. Oh yeah, no problem. Good to be here. Thanks for having us, for having me. <laughs> So how are you and the rest of the band faring during this really unusual time we're living in? You know, it's uh, it's hard to speak for the other guys because I've barely seen them in months. Um, we haven't been able to practice. So, yeah, it's been kind of difficult musically, you know, to really be excited about anything that uh, involves music. <laughs> <clears throat> Are you able to work on anything right now? You know, yeah, I've been I've been kind of working on stuff a little bit. Uh, yeah, you know, um, it's hard though. Like I usually kind of write like the majority of the riffs myself, and then I bounce them off uh, Kevin, the drummer, and we get together and kind of piece stuff together and figure out what works and what doesn't. And then, you know, Alex, the bass player comes in and gives us his opinions and writes his parts. So it's a group effort. And so, you know, it's hard to tell sometimes, you know, you can come up with something that you think is good, you know, or I'll do that. I'll go, Oh, this is great. <laughs> and then, you know, when I hear it with a drum beat, it does, oh, this doesn't work, you know? So yeah, but 
but I've been I've been keeping at it. Well, let's talk uh, how the band got started. How did Tithe begin? Well, I've actually been playing with Kevin um, for a long time. I met him about 10 years ago in the Bay Area. And uh, Kevin and I are both originally from Oregon. He's from Eugene. I'm from Corvallis. And uh, we didn't realize that when we met. We found that out later. But um, anyways, it just so happened that I had to move up back to uh, Oregon for family reasons. And Kevin had to move it at about the same time. So we both moved back up to the Northwest and, uh, you know, we wanted to keep playing together. And so, uh, yeah, we just, uh, you know, I kind of had this like idea to write, you know, music that was uh, for a band that was like every riff was a hook. And that was kind of the, uh, um, goal of the band. And, um, yeah, and so we, uh, you know, got together with our original bass player, Damon Kelly, and uh, wrote our first EP. Um, and uh, Damon, uh, just, he was really busy with work. He was the uh, road manager for the band Sleep and a bunch of other stuff, and it was just never in, in town. So uh, we ended up parting ways with him and finding Alex our current bass player and he's been with us for quite some time now and that's pretty much the story okay yeah. how was it for you guys down in the bay area playing music and uh working in and around that scene it was great uh i love i love the bay um i was living in oakland uh at the time that i met kevin and uh we we started two bands down there. Our first band that we did uh, uh, was called Burning Monk, and uh, Kevin and I didn't really have a lot of experience with doing bands at the time. And when we uh, you know first met, we were our plan was to do a, like a stoner metal band, and uh, that quickly changed into what Burning Monk was, which is like you know everything. It's a hodgepodge of everything, but it was kind of punk rock and you know, it, all that stuff. And you, you name it. We just kind of were like, yeah, whatever, let's just throw it all together. <laughs> and then, uh, that band, uh, turned into this band infinite waste. Um, and that was more of a grind hodgepodge, you know, grind death and doom. And, uh, it was pretty, pretty hyperactive sounding music. And so it was real fun. Uh, yeah, and then Internet Waste uh, dissolved when we moved up to the Northwest. Now, the, the the Bay Area has a really amazing, like, heavy rock scene, and I feel like, you know, here in Portland, there's a really great one as well. So was that an easy thing to sort of fall in with uh, the crowd, if you will, of, of, of bands that were making really uh, heavy music at that time when you moved back? It was. Um, you know, we knew people up here from playing shows up here with Infinite Waste. And so I already knew some people. And, you know, it's a it's a pretty tight-knit community. You know, once you start, like, playing shows or going to shows, you get to know a lot of the people in the scene. So, yeah, it was pretty easy experience. And I played in a couple other bands up here since I moved up here, which I no longer play with them anymore. But, yeah, so I got to know a lot of people up here. 
Now, the press notes for your debut album, Penance, which was just released by Tartarus Records in the Netherlands, it calls the band unapologetically strange and unorthodox. Uh, what is that getting at? <laughs> um, I'm not really fully sure. I, I think that, uh, you know, I think as far as unorthodox, I feel like the, uh, you know, the mu- especially in like heavy music, it's very like very genre specific and um, people, you know, divide up like the, the uh, different like sounds of a band into all of these different like names of, you know, what, what style it is. And we kind of, you know, it's kind of a blessing and a curse. Cause I think it's, it's fun to uh, just play kind of whatever you want and not be a slave to a style, but it seems like, you know, the listener and like people in general, like it when people just stick to like a certain formula and we don't really do that with with ties we kind of bounce all over the place the other descriptors that uh we're talking about in the press notes for this but talks about sort of i think the dual nature of your lyrical interests which is so far as i can tell uh, as it reads the psychedelic experience and the depravity of human nature <laughs> which is quite a quite a, yeah. quite a pairing there <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, lyrically, uh, it's, you know, I wanted to like stay away from politics and, um, although it's, it's hard to, you know, like reading the news every day, <laughs> True. having opinions, but I just feel like it's the low hanging fruit on the tree too, you know, just to go for that. Uh, so I wanted to write about like, uh, experiences from my life and, uh, yeah, you know, I've experimented with psychedelics a lot and uh, a few of the songs, um, on the album, were written kind of while taking, you know, psychedelics daily, like microdoses, sometimes bigger doses, but mostly microdoses. And that definitely influenced uh, some of those songs. And then, uh, yeah, I kind of decided to take a break uh, from, you know, taking it daily and wrote the rest of the songs. And you can tell, like, lyrically, if you read them, which ones were written while taking, you know, microdoses and, and the ones that were written when I wasn't. Um, you know, the ones that that were written once I kind of like stopped taking a uh, microdose, it's got a lot more negative and dark. Uh, but yeah, the, uh, you know, the songs are basically called from like just experiences in my life. Now, tell me about that experience of microdosing. Like what led you to want to try that out? Um, you know, I had a girlfriend that was really into it and I thought she was crazy at first and then, you know, tried it a couple of times and, um, it just was really beneficial, um, for me. And a lot of people, you know, say the same thing, but it just, uh, it, it kind of makes you mildly amazed at life. So it's hard to like be depressed and negative when, you know, life's kind of mildly amazing, but you're still able to function and like, you know, do your daily stuff. It's not like overwhelming. Interesting. Yeah, because I've only had like limited experience with that, so I'm always curious about other people, like why they go down that road and what that does for them. Yeah, I mean, it definitely made me feel a lot more positive about stuff. Now, have you guys tripped together as a band? We have not. Okay. I was always curious about that. Yeah. I mean, I mean, what do the other guys feel about that? The other guys feel about you, you trying those things and like even making music under the influence like that. 
You know, uh, I don't think that they mind at all. And they're not opposed to, um, you know, taking psychedelics or anything. It's just that that's just something that we haven't decided to do. Like, it's very, it's very, like, you know, we've taken microdoses before together, but we haven't taken full hits of acid together. Okay. I guess I should be clear about that. So there's a big difference, you know, uh, like a microdose is maybe like smoking a bong hit or something, but you have like more mental clarity, mm-hmm. um, which is why like tech workers are really into it and stuff, you know, the uh, computer tech workers. But, you know, you take a full, full hit of acid, you don't want to like try and do computer programming or <laughs> do a lot of stuff you know right. <laughs> kind of be a little overwhelming so yeah we just haven't really uh you know made the date to do that ever <laughs> Yeah, it would be interesting because I think, you know, the collective experience of taking psychedelics together is, from what I understand, is a very interesting dynamic. Yeah, it can be. It can be. Um, and it's it's really fun to play music, you know, on psychedelics or listen to music. It's a really neat experience. Now, you guys have been getting some really nice press notices for this first album, Penance. I mean, that has to feel good, especially considering how cathartic and personal a lot of the songwriting was for you. It's been it's been really nice just to have the album out um, in general. So, yeah, it feels really, really good just to finally have it out. You know, we recorded the album like a year ago, and it took a year, you know, as things, it, it takes a long time. Uh, to put out an album with, you know, label and stuff. And so, yeah, it took a long time. So it's, it's a, a big relief and uh, just anything is nice. You know, even if someone like writes a bad review or something, which I haven't seen yet, but like, I just appreciate that the person took the time to listen to our music, you know? Absolutely. Now uh, let's talk about the, the label you're working with Tartarus records in the Netherlands. How did you guys hook up with them? You know, I, uh, sent the uh you know tracks to tons of labels i had this list of a bunch of labels and uh uh tartarus was one of the only uh labels that got back to us and thankfully um you know richard at tartarus is great and um yeah they're a great label and we just felt really fortunate that you know that he took an interest in our music you know couldn't be more more happy about it Definitely. Now, where did your interest in listening to and playing heavy music and extreme metal like you do come from? Where did that all start? You know, I, uh, I've been around music my whole life. My parents are both classical musicians. Oh, wow. Um, and so I grew up listening to classical music was the first, you know, music that, that I, I heard. And um, I wasn't really, you know, I learned how to play the cello. Uh, when I was a kid, but I wasn't really that interested in it and wasn't, didn't really care for music that much. And, uh, you know, when I was a teenager, many, many years ago, uh, you know, I was a little skater kid and discovered punk rock. And that was kind of my first real love of music. Um, and, uh, you know, was a little punker skater kid and just loved that stuff. And, uh, just, you know, after learning how to play, guitar and learn how to play punk and stuff at, you know, after a while it just gets really repetitive and it's really easy to play. And so I just kind of moved into metal, uh, or playing metal just because it was more fun to play and it was more challenging. 
and I, I love I love metal. So I love all kinds of music. You know, you name it, I'll listen to it as long as it's not like terrible of my my humble opinion or whatever. But right. I listen to a pretty uh, wide range of music. And has your family, have your parents heard the music that you've made in this capacity? And what do they think of it? Oh yeah, <laughs> you know, uh, I think that they, uh, I think they're happy that um, I'm you know, playing music. Um, but I don't think they really get it, <laughs> but they're supportive, you know, well, that's good. And, uh, yeah, yeah. But yeah, I think that they're, you know, they, they just don't really fully understand metal, <laughs> which fair enough. You know, I think it's an acquired taste, you know, or either you like it or, or you're like, I don't understand. Why would you, you know, why is he singing like that? Or, you know, <laughs> I would think, and this is just from my perspective, that, that a lot of that most people who play classical music would at least appreciate the complexity of a lot of metal music. But yeah, I think, uh, I think, you know, if you kind of break it down uh, for people, you know, sometimes, they'll understand that and see the complexity, but you know, musical taste too, is just, it's subjective, you know, it's just like what's good and what's bad. is really just personal opinions. Absolutely. Now uh, I have to ask the obvious question, unfortunately of why tithe, like why did you choose that as the name of this project? Well, you know, our old bass player, Damon actually came up with the name and uh, he uh, had, you know, I I had been. It's always really difficult to come up with a band name, and any like you can go through the dictionary, and if you find a cool word, it's a band, you know. <laughs> right. And so I had this whole list of names, and uh, you know, Damon uh, had mentioned he's like, "Hey, you know, I've always wanted to name a band Ties," and I was like, "That's perfect. That's great. That's a good name. It's it's one word, and you know, there was no other band that was called that, and so we went with it. Excellent." That is always a challenge. Yeah. Like you go to the uh, you know Encyclopedia Metallum, I think is what it's called, and it's usually you can plug a word in there, and there's like like thirty bands around the world that has that band name. So to find one without that's oh, yeah. amazing. It's difficult. Yeah, like a one a one word name is really hard. Right. You know, you can put a couple words together. A lot of people just like make up uh, words. Yeah, that's exactly. <laughs> Well, for anyone that wants to keep track on when shows finally start happening for Tithe, go to facebook.com slash tithepdx, and you can listen to their music at tithepdx.bandcamp.com. Their debut album, Penance, is again out right now via Tartarus Records from the Netherlands. Thank you so much for being on the show today. This has been wonderful. Oh, hey, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. That about does it for this edition of World of Noise. Thank you to my guests, John Craigie, Adam Pike, and Matt Eisman. And thank you for tuning in. Be sure to listen next week to hear interviews with Jessica Graves, the singer-songwriter who has resurrected a long-dormant record label that was started by her mom to release her own music and that of other female artists. And Jason Tipp will be on the show to talk about his jazz-funk group Under the Lake and their new album, Your Horizon 2. All that next time on World of Noise. Until then, thanks for listening. Yeah.